0: On the 15 second skip button. Enjoy! There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash loss That's plushcare.com slash loss plushcare.com slash loss
1: I'm Kate Reed. I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm the founder and co-owner of a bakery called Loon, which specializes in croissants, but I have a very different previous life. The Driven Chat podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we
0: bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com.
2: Hi, I'm Rachel Downey. I'm currently sat opposite John Markar and I am about to interview the very, very lovely Kate Reed. Uh John Markar wasn't wasn't part of this. No. I mean, you did. Do you know what? She was absolutely lovely. I loved, there was many reasons why I wanted to talk to Kate and that all become clear when you listen to the podcast, yeah. but she's got such an interesting life story so far. And there was lots of, uh, we resonated a lot with a lot of past situations that we've been in. Um, She's a former, apart from this bit, which I'm about to say, Because I was not a former Formula One aerodynamicist. Um, That was not me in a past life. But that's what Kate Kate was, what she used to do. And now she runs um, Loon Bakery. Uh, She literally is a connoisseur when it comes to the most perfect croissant. And how she came from her life, which was all about Formula One, her dream of wanting and then achieving work in Formula One, and then how she ended up having the best croissants i think it was voted i can't remember which i think it was the new york times that voted that she had the best croissant in the world like how do you do that
0: i love that she's gone from like the most precision engineering role <laughs> yes. in motorsport to croissants and of uh, course they're the best of yes, course they are of
2: course Makes perfect sense. it's so true it's like you would look at the fact that yeah her work in formula one is the pinnacle of anyone's career and dreams and aspirations and yeah the reasons why she she left working in formula one we talk about all of that to her journey into discovering the most perfect croissant and making the most perfect croissant the only disappointment john Markar, can i just say is Mm -hmm. i haven't had the joy in tasting
0: that was going to be my next question obviously I wasn't there for this recording this was just you I haven't yet heard this conversation so I myself am looking forward to listening to it for the first time with you dear listener Uh, but yeah so no no croissants in the studio no
2: croissants I was expecting a big box or tray I'm not I'm not a snob um, of freshly baked croissants still warm As well, I don't know whether I was really aiming for the stars here. But yeah, we didn't get any croissants, which, you know. Well,
0: hopefully the conversation made up for it.
2: The conversation definitely made up for it. And yeah, lovely, lovely lady. And it was probably one of my favourite interviews actually. Oh. Yeah, you're like, oh. oh um, the one I wasn't The one you in. weren't there. Right, good. Yeah, I kind of said no, that. No, that's thing. great. That's yeah. really
0: great. Yeah. Well, um, sh- let's dive into it then. In fact, we'll dive into this and then at the very end of the episode, as we frequently do, we'll we'll come back and readdress you, dear listener, with some parish notes, <laughs> catch up on things, because we've kind of got into the new year without paying any kind of reference to it at all we've just been ticking along and we've got we had bonus episodes over the christmas period uh, that we haven't talked about yet and uh, we've got another one to come i'll tell you about that at the end Uh, so yeah let's dive into that conversation and we'll speak to you again in just a little bit here is rachel downey and kate reed enjoy the driven chat podcast in association with paramex digital Hi, John Markar here. Just another very quick interruption, separate from both the introduction we've recorded and from the podcast episode. This conversation that you're about to hear with Rachel and Kate does feature a couple of hard-hitting subjects, that being anorexia and eating disorders we do like to just mention when we know we've got a hard-hitting subject that some people might get affected by we'd just like to mention it just ahead of time just in case anyone wants to reassess how they want to listen or where they want to listen that sort of thing anyway that's it just thought we'd mention it just in case enjoy the episode speak to it a bit stay tuned till the end because there's a big announcement as well
2: and as you can tell listeners um kate's australian and without realizing <laughs> this morning when i got ready i you know put on put on the skirt, put on my T-shirt. And I'm actually wearing my Kylie and Jason Donovan T-shirt. <laughs> so it's like an OD to Neighbours and to you. So there we go. Like, It's made me feel very at home. Anytime. I'm always here to help. Thanks. And I can't. I, I, when I looked down, I was like,
1: oh, I all the things to wear.
2: <laughs> but, you know, Neighbours is a proud thing.
1: Well, I've got my Coronation Street one on underneath this, so we're matching. <laughs>
2: It's like win-win. Um, do you know what? I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel like we could be here for days talking, but we're not because we're in a, a small podcast studio and that would be, you know, torturous. With the uh, air conditioning turned off. With it turned <laughs> off. And so it's going to get quite hot and clammy any moment. It really is. And you're going to Paris this weekend, so I can't keep you forever. Um, but you do have quite an eclectic mix of, of life experiences that have got you to where you are here today. Let's go. I'm gonna go right back to the beginning. And obviously, you, you know, you work for Williams Formula One. Um, before then, you used to. I fell in love with motorsport basically by watching it with my dad. Um, I used to watch Formula One every other weekend, every other Sunday. And for me, there's there's quite a, a a romantic feel when I think of Formula One. That and that's that's how I fell in love with it. So, how did you first get? That love bug for most sport.
1: This is going to be a really fun podcast because um, <laughs> I fell in love with Formula One watching it with my dad oh, on <laughs> So, yeah, I think maybe yeah. a slightly different experience. Obviously, in Australia, the majority of the races occur in the middle of the night. Yeah. And so, you know, being early teens, 11, 12, 13 years old and being allowed to stay up late on a Sunday night in the winter in Australia, not in the summer in you Europe. You had a good dad. <laughs> yeah, I had a good dad. And yeah. it was like... it. There, I do have romantic notions of like being a little kid, being allowed to stay up late. We'd leave the heater on, we'd have midnight oh. tea and toast and like virtually travel around the world with Formula One. You know, it was in the era of, I guess, early early days would have been the very early days of Michael Schumacher, Nigel oh, Mansell, wow. followed yeah, by the greats. Damon yeah. Hill, David Coulthard, Jacques Villeneuve um, coming in Rubens Barrichello. And it's... It was a way to travel every two weeks with this, like, exciting sport that um, you really got to sink your teeth into for two hours. But I think um, up until 1995, the Australian Grand Prix was held in Adelaide and then Melbourne poached it, and I live in Melbourne, and every year Dad (laughs) would, like, trek off to Adelaide without me and I felt like he was, you know, like deserting me. I was was devastated. Like I'd sit in Melbourne for the four days grumpy that he was there at the track and I wasn't. I would do the same. And I'd never experienced it. But um, when it moved to Melbourne in 1996, he bought myself and my brother tickets to free practice on the Friday.
2: Oh, wow.
1: And we got to skip school that day. But I think it wasn't the skipping school that was so exciting. It was like, there are so many visceral memories about that day. Like It was a slightly overcast, humid, Mm. murky, weird Melbourne March day. Yeah. But arriving at the track, the F1s had just come out for their first practice. And as we're like lining up to scan our tickets to go in, you just hear this like squeal, you know, that hurts your ears. It was the V10 engines back then, the quieter these days. But Dad had made us, you know, put our earplugs in and just the sound of it like vibrated through your whole body and then witnessing the cars for the first time in person. There's this section, this big sweeping, I believe it's a left-hander that goes along Albert Park Lake Um, and the the viewing section is called Brocky's Hill after Peter Brock and Dad kind of walked us over the crest of Brocky's Hill and suddenly there are like Formula One cars just going so fast that you can't even fix your gaze on them. And just witnessing that, I was like, oh, my God, I have to be in this world. So I think, wow. yeah, uh, if you want to go way back,
2: uh, yeah, Dad. Let's do
1: it. so dad raced cars when, um, before I was born, he raced Formula V. Oh,
2: wow. So
1: yeah, fairly, I guess, similar to Formula Ford. Yeah. And when mum was pregnant with me, she would go along to the track to watch dad and I think was just petrified. Mum's a very sensible person, <laughs> but uh, I think she blames going to the track and like maybe the scent of it and the sound permeated her pregnant belly and, and made me fall in love it's with it. It's all your dad's fault. There
2: it's all go. dad's fault. It's yeah. all dad's fault. But that's the <laughs> yeah. thing I think with motorsport and I always say to my friends, you know, go to a race and then you'll yeah. get it. It is that's it's all the sensations. It's the smell, it's the noise. It's and that's what my favorite race is Le Mans and just being there, you you you're in a different world. Oh, and that's how it gets into your blood somehow. Oh, I went to Le Mans back in 2007
1: for the first time for the 24 hour race, yeah. dad had taken me to the circuit when I was like nine years old and we were on a family trip to the UK and France. And I remember being like very taken by it, but actually being at Le Mans, like at 3am in the morning on one of the corners, right at the back end of the circuit where it's pitch black. Yeah, And I think the era that I went there, uh, both the Peugeot and Audi were like so quiet. And all you saw was like, this flash of light coming from nowhere and then it was gone. And it's just, you're right, there's something incredibly special about witnessing yeah. it in person.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's its just magical. So, so how did you get, you know, from someone loving, you know, watching the racing with the dad? How, how did you end up working for Williams Formula One um, as an aeronautical engineer? How, how does that happen? Well, like, the
1: first dream was to be a driver because I think that's like, good. Yeah I mean that's that's probably the fantasy. Yeah. You know, if you love motorsport, you're like, oh, I want to drive one of them. And I was, I wanted to buy a go-kart and race go-karts. So dad told me I had to go and get a part-time job. I bought myself a competitive go-kart and oh. I became obsessed with practicing. And, you know, I was a member of the go-kart club of Victoria, and we'd go to the track every day after school, and I would, you know, just try and get seconds and then, you know, fractions of a second off my lap time. And finally, dad was like, Kate, you've actually got to like get in a race one day. We've got, <laughs> we've got to stop just coming to the circuit and doing testing. So the first day I signed up for it, like I just didn't have the animal instinct. And I think I was terrified. There were like cowboy kids out on the circuit there and you know, they were just cowboy boys.
2: Yeah. 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 And yep. I think I valued
1: my life. <laughs> yes, and so I kind of good. just let people past me. And I think after that first race, I thought, you know what? Maybe like being a driver is not my thing. <laughs> yeah. but I'd always loved maths and science at school, which is like a pretty uncool thing to say, especially yeah. back in the day when you're a 14 year old girl. But I had, and I I think like I like to shout it from the rooftops now because encouraging more women into STEM is something that I'm really passionate about. Okay, good. Um Do you guys use the word STEM in the UK? Yeah,
2: we do. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was just wondering if yeah people are going to be like, what's
1: <laughs> what's she talking about? What
2: is STEM? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so. I went along to a careers day at RMIT, and I, because they had like an automotive engineering degree specific, so RMIT used to be a TAFE, which is like, I guess it's more of a technical college rather than a university. But mm-hmm. several decades ago, it became a university, so you could go and get degrees. And one of the degrees that they offered was uh, automotive engineering, um, not a generic engineering. So I went along and chatted to them, and I said, "Look, I, I want to." be an engineer so I can work in Formula One. I was fixated on this goal. And they were like, okay, you could study automotive engineering, but it lends itself more to the commercial automotive industry. If you really want to get into Formula One, you should study aerospace engineering because it sort of covers like the most, the most advanced technical development. Like obviously it's in space and aircraft. And so many of those things are also relevant to Formula One, particularly aerodynamics so after that career's day, I was just fixated on getting into aerospace engineering and did all of my high school studies that led me to getting the score that I needed to get into aero at RMIT. And I just spent five years at university, obsessed with university. Like I was so well behaved. I, really? I wasn't a party animal. I yeah. didn't drink. I You know, it was 40 contact hours a week at uni with wow. lectures and tutors. And then you'd go home and you'd study until three in the morning. That's but was so intense. It was so intense. This is really embarrassing. But at the no. end of my first year of uni, um, because I, I knew that a career in Formula One would take me to the UK because, yeah. you know, the majority of F1 teams are based here. And I loved the idea of that because family holidays when I was a kid were always back to the UK to visit mum's family, who's from Northern Ireland. Mm. And like... I love like the switchback bridges and the windy country roads, you know, lined by hedges. And I've just got memories of road trips. And I had this romantic vision of living in the UK. So to sort of inspire myself further with the vision, I thought at the end of my first year, I'm going to take myself off to the UK for a month in December. Like, you know, the weather we're having now, it's pretty cold and Yeah, well, well, the time to come. Yep. <laughs> And I packed three of my textbooks with me because I was so sad that the first year of uni was over, and I just wanted to like still immerse myself in the knowledge. So, oh lovely. wow, I know, like what a mad woman walking around <laughs> the, the UK three heavy textbooks in my I mean, backpack! But
2: but you're like you say you're immersing yourself in this world. This yep. is not just oh when I grow up I want to be this. This is this is my life, and yep. that's the thing with the moment you think about having a career, it is your identity. It, yes. it is who you are and it's who you
1: become so I think it is if like this is an interesting conversation I think it is if you know what you want and you're passionate about it yes and there are a lot of people that I don't think ever figure out their thing Mm. or they're more motivated by hobbies that they don't turn into a career but like my entire life is littered with examples of I fall in love with something and therefore it has to be everything about me. And like Formula One is like the the first big example of that in my life where I just – I became all about it and I just lived for it.
2: And how did the Williams job come around? Like, So you were studying, you said, for five years. Yeah. So what happened after those five years?
1: So the year that Damon Hill won the world championship, I believe it was 96, 96 or 97, or did Villeneuve win it in 97 when he was at Williams.
2: I think, I would have been 17.
1: It was one of those two years. Yeah. So anyway, the year that that Damon Hill won it, mum and dad for Christmas that year bought me a book about his championship winning year. And when I was packing up my life in Melbourne to move to the UK, I was unpacking my bookshelf and I came across this one and I pulled it out and a slip of paper fell out of the front. And that year I'd written a note to myself this is so embarrassing, I love this. promising myself that by the age of 25, the Williams F1 team would have offered me a job. And wow. I was packing up my life at 23 to move to the UK because Williams had offered me a job. And it was a, a, a fairly uh, a, just a, a raw moment of like, wow, I've actually achieved this pretty wild goal. Yeah,
2: it's talking it into existence, isn't it? That's Yeah, manifesting it ca- literally. That's what you've done without realising yeah. all those years. So I finished
1: aero um, five years, probably about 22 years old. I started uni when I was 17. And the first year out, I got a job for Ford Motor Company in Melbourne working. It was weird. Like I knew it was always going to be a transitionary role. Yeah. But working in human resources, but as an engineer. And I developed this thing called a technical maturity model that working with every single engineering department, we documented like... Every single technical skill that an engineer at every level would require. So, Ford were trying to bolster their technical expertise because they realized they had a company of generalist engineers and not specialists and they needed to improve the, their design. Okay. But then, throughout that year, I was volunteering for a Formula 3 team and, like, that experience was pretty eye opening in itself. It was kind of my first ever engagement with. A racing team. And these guys were rough. Like, he's <laughs> this like clean-cut, private school educated yep. girl who's yep. studied aerospace engineering. And oh, that's cute. She wants to get a bit of experience with us. Like, let's oh, bless you know, her. bless her, yeah. but also like let's rough her up a bit. <laughs> and they didn't take me seriously. They teased me constantly. Like it it was probably tantamount to bullying. Yeah. But maybe I was just a bit blind to it because I was getting to work with a car. And on reflection, that time with those guys was so valuable because like, they taught me how to like break down and rebuild a gearbox and pull the car apart. And when you finally work in Formula One, you realize how important it is to, Mm. like, you might have the best idea for an aerodynamic component, but if it takes three hours to change on the car, it's completely useless. Mm. It has to, it has to be practical and you know, the, the pit crew have to be able to pull it off and change it in a matter of seconds. So actually teaching you the the mechanics and the physical build of something that they were, there was a valuable year working with that team. But um, so I was volunteering with them while I was working at Ford. And I also applied um, on recommendation from one of my lecturers for a Masters of Motorsport Engineering and Management at Cranfield University in the UK. And I'm not sure if it's the same now, but at the time, I think a few of the Formula One teams actually sponsored it and they oh. took 10 or 15 people a year. It was incredibly expensive and you had to go through a really stringent application process. But once you got in, it was kind of your golden ticket into Formula One. So my lecturer said, you should apply for this. I applied for it. It was hectic in terms of the application process, but I ended up getting offered a spot. So once I had this spot, I'm like, great. There's like a nugget that I can start writing to Formula One teams and say, hey, I've been accepted for this <laughs> course at Cranfield. Is there any chance I could come and, you know, do some free work experience with you before I start it? Because I think it was like about 15 months before I was due to start this course at Cranfield. And I sent letters off to like, it wasn't just F1 teams in the end, like I expanded my search to Raleigh teams and, you know, some Formula Three and things like that. Got... Either negative responses or nothing back from. Oh, it's Nice much. when that happens, yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. really uh, encouraging. Yeah, yeah, uplifting. Yep. 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 uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> and then the no, it was like this beautiful, like late spring November morning, and I got up and I was checking my email, and there was an email in from the HR department of Williams saying, "Oh, your letters just landed on our desk. We're actually recruiting for junior aerodynamicists in a permanent role." Uh, we'd be interested in interviewing you. And I was <gasps> like, maybe wow. I fell off my seat. Yeah. Maybe I had just this, this moment where time stopped. But like suddenly this thing that I'd been working towards for 10 years was happening and um, I was wrote Was that back,
2: scary, by the way, when all of a sudden this is, okay, this is happening. Was it overwhelming or were you still like absolutely amazing? Let's go for it. Let's. Oh, I think I was just so laser focused that yeah.
1: this this is going to sound really bad, but. I think I was surprised it hadn't already happened, you know. Like there was just no eventuality in my mind that I wasn't going to work in Formula One and that at some point it would happen. And so this was just like, I mean, I was ecstatic, don't get me wrong, but it was also just like, well, this this is in the grand plan. This was meant to happen at some point. And, I mean, it's the team that's the dream team for me to work for has reached out to me like, this is meant to be. So... I had the interview with them a few weeks later they emailed me and told me that I'd been uh, they wanted to offer me the job and I think about 6 weeks later I was packed up my life and I was on a plane to the UK to spend the rest of my days
2: wow. <laughs> as far as I
1: was concerned
2: Now yeah. I read that you were the only female in your your facility in your in your team So
1: Bigger than that, I was the only female at the time working in a technical capacity in the entire organisation. So there were women working in areas like human resources and marketing and and hospitality. But, um, yeah, so including, like, the design office as well as the aero, I was the only female, Um, which didn't – it didn't phase me that much because, like, when I was going through university – there were 120 of us studying aero and I think about eight eight or nine girls in the course.
2: Okay. So
1: I was kind of used to it and in terms of working with men and like maybe this has fluctuated over my career in terms of how I feel about it but I like how they think linearly and mm-hmm. I'd come from an all-girls private school which was incredibly bitchy and catty yeah. and guys just weren't like that. They were like direct and I kind of liked that straight to the point that, you know, I didn't have – weird, funny fights where we like wondered what each other was thinking like.
2: hundred percent agree. Or yeah, you're, someone's in a mood with you. Like, Yeah. For, like guys, were, they were never no. in a mood with me. No. Or like if something was wrong, they'd just say it.
1: And you yeah. had the opportunity to just fix it immediately. So there was very little tension, which was good. So I was used to that. And I think it didn't, it didn't really dawn on me what it would mean that there would be no females in my workplace and i just realize now how important that mm-hmm. balance and diversity is in a healthy workplace. Yes. But yeah. at the time i was used to it i was fine with it. Um the aero department of Williams is in a completely separate facility which had been recently built like a, a few years prior to me starting. Um so they had a 60% wind uh, wind tunnel and also a full scale with a rolling road so they could test the the actual race car. Like, once a part had proven successful on the 60% scale, they'd then go, okay, well, like, how is it when you have the wheels moving and, you know, does it behave the same? And I just remember on my first day being taken into the full-scale wind tunnel and, like, the race car was on there and it was being tested and it was truly a pinch myself. Like, this is like, oh, I've actually made it. Like
2: yes. That was, and so from that, that first moment, what, what was it like? Did you have loads of those pinch me moments? Did you, you know, what, what was it like day to day working there?
1: Oh, so
2: the, I guess the first few
1: weeks were littered with pinch me moments, Mm. but the reality of what an engineer working in Formula One looks like on a day to day basis started to set in. Mm. And it's funny, like, you know, if we're at high school, you know, we, we get that one week of work experience. And if you want to do something that's a pretty accessible career, you can go and do a week of work experience and actually witness, like you might be put on the photocopier, but you can witness what the office mm-hmm. environment's like and, yeah. and look at, say, the lawyers or the accountants and, and what a day looks like for them. But you can't do that in Formula One. Like it's such a, an elite secretive world mm-hmm. that over 10 years, I'd built up this very clear picture of what my life was going to look like working in F1. And, you know, to my mind, it was the people who were sort of the greatest brains and minds in their different fields of engineering coming together with often what seemed like limitless budget and resource to have a lot of fun with a race car, like, you know, not saving the planet, but like if you design something incredible, like for example, in the nineties, traction control, it then could potentially cascade down into the commercial automotive industry and have an impact on the day-to-day cars that every, every person drives. So like I imagined it to be deeply collaborative, brainstorming, like a really motivating, inspirational environment Mm -hmm. to work in where, I mean, I felt privileged to be in that position, like you know, to to have everything that I've just described, and I thought everyone will feel privileged, and as such, it'll be an incredibly positive environment where mm. there's maybe a bit of, I'm not sure if brevity is the right word, but like acknowledgement that we've got it pretty good, yeah, and we may as well like really enjoy it, and it just wasn't that, no, and maybe had Williams been at the front of the grid at the time. It might have been that because I think the team that's winning, they're the ones that are like really innovating and pushing the boundaries, but all the teams behind them are just trying to figure out what they're doing and chasing them. Mm. And it can be stressful working in a Formula One office that's not winning because you're just trying to figure out how to catch the cars in front of you. And there's a lot of stress Um, I realised pretty early on, I think somebody from HR told me that 3,000 CVs would land on her desk every week. Wow! And knowing that fact, you're like, okay, there are many, many people nipping at my heels. And if I'm not doing the job, I'll be replaced in a heartbeat by someone who will. But I mean, how how long have I been talking? I'm I'm a chatterbox.
2: No, but that's so true though. It's, but it is, it's, out of those 3,000 people and you know I kind of feel that with certain freelancing like presenting jobs I've done yep. and you kind of think and some of them will probably work instead of me doing my 40 hours a week or however long your hours were they will stay till 10 at night yep and maybe not even ask for as much money as me you know and, Correct. and that's the reality of it yep um, you've just described yeah. what it was working and you're there. never going to win it's like being on a like a hamster wheel you're you're never going to win you're never going to get to the top of what you think that, that, that yep. mountain is but also I read that was it like something like 400 people might work at Williams, but they don't all go to the races, which is so obvious. Well, it's 500 and I think
1: about 40 go to the races. Wow. And I was kind of under no illusions about that. Like I knew that the job was office-based, but when the team's not winning and there's a lot of pressure on certain elements of the business, like there was a lot of pressure on the aero office to make the car perform better.
2: Yeah.
1: So it was a negative environment, like, you're talking about staying late. Like the majority of people were there until well after like dinner time. Um, and so Frank would like, he slept in an apartment that was above the main design office three or four nights a week. And so he would like head out, you know, at nine or 10 o'clock at night and just, you know, wheel up and down the corridors and just see who was still working. So like one of the first, maybe the first couple of weeks that I was working there, I was sat at my desk at about 9, 9.30 at night mm. with many of my colleagues still around me, which is wild. Like you just yeah. realise that if you really want to make it in Formula 1, that's going to be your entire life, which is fine. At this point, I was still committed to that.
2: Yeah.
1: So I see the door to the Aero office open and Frank, Sir Frank, sorry, uh, wheel in. And I had, I was, my desk was facing out on the main corridor and I saw him roll past me and then his head stopped and rolled backwards and he put his head over my little partition. He was like, oh, my God, it's a girl.
2: (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So there's everything about that time as well, doesn't it? Well, there
1: wasn't even a female toilet in the Aero building, in the Aero building, which housed about 120 people. So there was male toilets and
2: a disabled toilet. So
1: Sir Frank and I shared the disabled toilet.
2: And did you think at that time... Oh my god, this is this is ridiculous. Or again, no. because you're so used to it, and it's it's okay. Okay, this is how it is. I think it's maybe only in hindsight
1: that yeah. I look back and I think that there's kind of something wrong with that. Yeah. But at the time, I was still so grateful to be in my dream job, and I think there were like there were certainly moments early on where I'm like, oh, this kind of doesn't feel like what I thought it would feel like. But it's very early days and you 100% have to earn your stripes. Yeah. You know, like you get, I think my salary was 13,000 pounds a year and I was working 60, 70 hours a week. And often, you know, if you're on wind tunnel shift, that can be like night
2: shift. So it's not glorified work experience, but it is a little bit. Like for that kind of money. Yeah. Yeah. You do have a lovely story um, when you went to the race in Monaco. Oh, yeah. With your with your dad.
1: So yeah. going back to Sunday nights, you know, when I was a kid and we would watch it, do you remember that really tall, narrow stand as the cars exit the tunnel? It, I don't think it exists anymore. I know. But yep, you know the one? Yeah,
2: I know exactly the one.
1: So dad and I, you know, when I was a kid, we would sit there every, like what, the last weekend of May every year and, yeah. and we'd say, one day we're going to go to Monaco together and we're going to sit in that stand. So the first year I'm over in the UK working at Williams, dad organised a trip to come and visit me and we actually booked tickets to sit in that stand together. So we were making a dream come true too. But um, we were spending, I think, four or five days plus a couple each side of the Grand Prix down on the south coast of France. And at the time I was living with one of the mechanics that worked on the pit crew for the Williams team and I told him that dad and I were going to be down in Monaco, so you know, we're sitting in our stand on, I think it's Thursday, Saturday, Sunday in Monaco, isn't it? They, yes, don't, they don't do do Friday. Friday. yeah. So we were in our stand on the Thursday and I got a text from Dan, my flatmate, saying, hey, mate, you and your dad should come and hang out with us in the pits. And like at this point in time, you know, I'd gone to the Melbourne Grand Prix every year since its existence. And I just stared at the pits and like, how do you get in there? Yeah. I just, I want to be close to the action. And suddenly I'm in the pits with my dad That's at amazing. Monaco. And I'm wearing civvies. Wow. And so I think at one point one of the engineers clicks and they're like, oh, Kate from the aero office is here and she's a girl and she's not in team uniform. No one will suspect that she's an aerodynamicist. So they armed me with an SLR camera and told me to go down the pits and take spy photos of the <gasps> other components of the cars. Really?
2: Yeah. And literally uh,
1: <laughs> no one questioned it to the point where one of the Ferrari mechanics started posing being like, you know, I'm not going to try an Italian accent. You know, do you want me to like pose against the wheel? And I was kind of like, oh, you're kind of blocking that yeah. element on the end plate. Can you Come you precious, of move out the
2: way. <laughs> Come on, treacle. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good. Fool them. Like, that's yeah. amazing.
1: So, I mean, that's, you know, that was a pretty special experience. Yeah. And to get to do that with my dad as that's, well, yes. that's, Potentially that's like the pinnacle, you yeah, know. That's beautiful. Dad and I, Monaco in the pits, like we went and stood up while we we're watching them do uh, pit stop practice and like dad's chatting away to Jackie Stewart, Alexander Wurtz is on my left home. I mean chat that's to amazing me? to yeah, be able was, to
2: do that with your dad, yeah. you know, who who loves the sport, you know, who yeah. and with his girl. It was I mean a that dream is come true. Absolutely amazing. And yeah. you know, you had these highs, yet you had this intense pressure. Mm. And one thing that really resonated with me was I had an eating disorder for 14 years and 14 years of my of my growing up years of my life, I will never get back. And sadly, you were hit with anorexia. I was. Um, and I think, so I stayed at
1: Williams for about a year and mm. then I think headhunting might be a bit of a generous term. But we'll go with it, don't worry. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe at the time it was spiker which mm-hmm. was then force india and they reached out to me and said we're looking for you know junior aerodynamicists all so like so i think it was like junior aerodynamicists senior that, and then a model maker in each team that's how it was sort of put together or a, a designer and they're like we're looking for the the more junior aerodynamicist to join and a few people have said that um you're good uh would you be interested in coming to have an interview so I confided in one of my colleagues who was in the air office, a very good friend who had worked for Jordan previously. And he said, look, I think it's a really great opportunity. It's a smaller team and you'll have more opportunity to do more work. So it's a great chance to learn and build your career. Mm. But moving to the Jordan team, or sorry, the Spiker team was probably one of the worst moves I could have made for my mental health. Because if I thought, the environment in the Williams office was bad. It was 10 times worse oh, in, wow. in the Spiker office and it wasn't diagnosed, but I definitely developed depression. Mm. And I think I probably went down a bit of a slippery slope for about six months and I found myself deeply unhappy at work mm. in a relationship where like it was supportive, but I had no female friends. So if I was having an issue in my relationship, I couldn't talked to any female friends about it and like had no support at work. I was really missing my family. I was really starting to miss Australia. Like I'm truly like, I love living in Melbourne so much. It's definitely my home. Mm. I love traveling, but I'm always happy to come back to Melbourne. So there are all these elements of my life that I had no control of or seemingly no control of. Then I joined a gym and very quickly discovered that through Simple things, exercise and Mm -hmm. controlling what you eat, you can have. And I wasn't overweight. I was just, I just realized that I could control them very easily with measurable results. And like engineers love a measurable result, you know, like.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you're all over that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And I think with all of these elements out of control, I focused Mm -hmm. on the two things I could control. And I got like, I developed crazy complex spreadsheets where I would weigh you know, to the gram, everything that I ate, I would calculate what calories were in it, different types of exercise that I did. I'd map it. I'd weigh myself at the same time every morning. It's, it became like my formula one pet project. Yeah. So I guess where I'd positively channeled my maybe obsessive compulsive tendencies into something very positive with my studies and in engineering to get to formula Mm. one. At this point, the, the, obsessive compulsive tendencies and the need for data and control got channeled into a very negative, um, outlet and yeah, became very sick. At this point in time, I'd actually, I think I stayed at Spiker for a bit over six months and then I had made one female friend who worked for a company called JMI that Zach Brown was actually, yeah, Yeah, yeah. I think he might've been the owner of. Yeah. Um, And they were a motorsport-focused marketing agency that really specialised in Formula One in their UK office. And she got me a job working on the Lenovo account that was actually one of William's sponsors. And so I moved over there with the hope of like maybe if I change an element of my job, Mm. like come out of a very introverted role, which engineering is, like engineers aren't meant to be super outgoing, chatty. The life and soul of... A room. Yeah. yeah. Like I think it, the job to be really good at it required you to be quite insular mm. and really be able to sit at a computer for 16 hours a day and focus on one task without a lot of human interaction. And that's just not me. No. But then potentially I thought, well, the marketing role will actually get me out to races. It's working with a lot more people. But by the time I moved there, I was already sick. And, I mean, if you suffered with an eating disorder for 18 years, you know that once you're in the group of it, it's incredibly hard to get out of it.
2: And you want to get out of it. It's not – it's – it. I used to have dreams that I could just go out for dinner with with some friends. Yeah. And number one, people do turn their backs from away from you because obviously you're, you're yeah. poorly, you're having to, you know – you isolate from people because you don't want to be out there. You don't want to socialise. You have to cancel because the thought of, you know, all of that is too much. But you want to get better. Yeah. You don't – you want to be like, like everyone else.
1: people living in your head. Yes. Yeah. And the, the eating disorder is not you. Yeah. And it's this constant tug of war. Yeah. But the eating disorder always wins out because yeah. I'm sure you can associate with this as well. When you actually listen to the one that wants to be sociable and go out for dinner and eat and see your friends – when you do that, the panic that ensues from what you've eaten and the fact that you've, like, what is the word when you you know you've you've not been able to resist temptation and you've let go of control, mm. it's it's like you've let yourself down.
0: The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramax Digital.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: kind of distaste with yourself for doing that you oh. hate yourself for doing you that you hate yourself and it's in a way and then it makes it even worse and it's it, it it's hard also cuz and i was thinking about this the other day it's if you're an alcoholic you can maybe be in an environment where there's no alcohol mm. when you're trying to get better with anorexia with an eating disorder you need food yeah food's everywhere and even when you're going through a recovery, it's like, but you still need to eat. Yeah. And it's it's just so hard. And but also you, you get to that stage when your body is in starvation mode. Yeah you, you, you're just not it's like a high. It's you just can't eat. There's just nothing. Yeah. But but you can't
1: eat, but you can't stop thinking about Oh, eating 24-7. Because you are starving. And yes. your body is just sending signals to your brain all day, like Food, food. We need fuel. Yeah, and it's this torture. Like, you're right. You kind of you lose your appetite. You you don't feel hungry. Like I, you know what? I've been recovered for probably like properly recovered for Mm. about eight or nine years.
2: Yeah,
1: I never feel hungry. Mm. I only know that I need food because I get very very cold and like my limbs start to like not move as well as they should. And I know that that's kind of my body going into like, you know, 5% battery mode, like, you know, yellow mode on the iPhone where it's like, all right, let's slow down a little bit. And like, it's, it's, you don't feel hungry, but your body needs food. And it's torturous as well, because you're just thinking about it all the time then. It's actually, it's, I mean, I obviously said at the start of the podcast, what I do now, I own a bakery and I specialize in pastries, but the way that I started to just survive in the UK and I guess this was partially the eating disorder talking but it Mm. also was the only thing that brought me happiness I'd get home from work and throughout the day at work you know I would have been planning meticulously what I was going to cook for dinner because as you know you just don't trust anyone to cook for you because
2: no you'll add
1: something in you'll add yeah you'll butter in there or cream of olive oil yes Yeah so, and then you can weigh it out like okay the recipe says a tablespoon but you might put a teaspoon yes. you're like oh I was a little bit better with that. Yeah yeah. So I'd plan meticulously what I was going to cook for dinner but then the part, like also when you're hungry you don't you don't dream about eating lettuce you know you, you dream about eating the thing that you want the most.
2: Oh my god yeah. Right? It's all the the pizzas or I want so I'll go that way or yeah the most the naughtiest the, the most delicious yes. like the thing
1: that you crave so I would think about baked goods because I have the greatest sweet tooth of all time. So I would also plan something that I would bake. And it was this beautiful relationship of vicariously living through, interacting with the ingredients. Mm. And even like there are some beautiful little like produce shops in, you know, I lived in Wantage and then in Banbury. And like Banbury has some beautiful little specialty ingredient shops. So even the process of on the way home from work, I I knew that I'd get to stop and I'd get to like peruse the the little aisles and shelves of these specialty ingredient shops and pick out what I was going to bake with. And then I'd go home and, you know, for example, if you're making like a chocolate cake, you can't eat raw flour, raw sugar, raw eggs, or, you know, you don't want to eat any of that by itself. But there's this magic and science in baking where when you bring it together, it becomes something that's so much more than the sum of its parts. And Mm. suddenly it's like this delicious, light, fluffy, chocolatey, moist cake covered in frosting. And, you know, when you saw them all lined up in the on the bench, it was just this neat lineup of raw ingredients that were inedible. But yeah. now it's this thing that brings people so much joy. And, you know, you take it out of the oven and the whole house smells good. And, like, you could even just live vicariously through the scent of knowing what you'd created. Yeah. But yeah. then you have the added benefit. You'd take it into work the next day and you just see how much joy it brought other people And you mentioned it when I first came into the room to, to speak to you that in motorsport, I think towards the end, I really felt a little bit jaded. Like Mm. I understood that my job wasn't doing any good or like adding anything of like real value to the world, apart from like, you know, great entertainment. Yeah. But I want like, making a cake and taking it into the office i i would witness people that for 5 or 10 minutes would just like have this break from their mind where all they could think about was this delicious thing they were eating and it like bringing someone a moment of joy
2: yeah.
1: it's not changing the world in a big way but if you can do that to like say 10 people who cut up your chocolate cake and eat it like i've improved 10 people's day for yeah. 10 minutes and given them this little moment of joy i'm like that kind of means more to me than yeah. Designing a Formula One car at this point,
2: and it's also feeding your soul. It's, Correct. It's you're feeling these things of, this is what it's about. Yeah, you know. Um. So, when was that moment that you left being in the UK that you were like, this? I can't carry on like this. I'm- oh, it's.
1: It didn't end up being my decision. Mm-hmm. I think I was, you know, when you drop below a certain weight, yeah. you really lose the ability of rational thought. And as you said, it's those two voices in your head. It's, it's the you battling the voice of the eating disorder. Yeah. But I'd gone out to do an event with Lenovo at the Spanish Grand Prix in Barcelona and I was like 39 kilos. And I think some people in the office had started to raise their eyebrows and be pretty concerned about me. But more than anybody, my boyfriend was like, our relationship had totally disintegrated. Mm. Like, it's impossible to have a relationship with someone with an eating disorder because... Boyfriend,
2: friends, you can't.
1: You can't. And life had become hell for him. Yeah. And in retrospect, I think when you're suffering from the eating disorder, it's also a very selfish disease because you become just so all about yourself. Yeah. Um, And it must have been absolute Mm. hell for him to have to live with me and deal with me. Yeah. And in the end, he called my dad one night and he said, I'm really worried about Kate and I just don't know what to do anymore. Um. I don't think she should be living in the UK anymore. Wow! So dad came back, oh, came over to the UK and like literally in two days packed up my life and took me home. Oh God. So it wasn't my decision, but I think had it been left up to me to make the decision, I don't think I could have. I mm. needed it to be taken out of my hands because it was like saying goodbye to a lifelong dream. Yeah. Even though I wasn't happy and I knew it wasn't right, I'm really stubborn and- yeah. Maybe I wanted to prove to myself that I could stick it out. And
2: and it's not going to beat you. It's like, yeah, these things exactly. are not going to beat me. I'm going to do this. And also, if you've grown up, this is what I want. This is, you know, you didn't have your party years at university. You yep. didn't. It, it it became you. So yep. maybe even not realising in that moment, you're kind of saying goodbye to who that version of Kate. Correct. And yep. that's huge. Yeah. And you have to let go of a lot of
1: things. And, and it's... And then at that point, who am I? Yeah. Because I'm somebody that like really needs to exist for a purpose. Mm. I am not someone that could have a nine to five job in an office that lives for the weekends because nine to five Monday to Friday in your adult years are literally the best years of your life. And I don't want to spend the majority of my waking hours in a job that doesn't fulfill me and satisfy me, but admitting that F1 wasn't right for me and not having something else that totally fulfills me yep. is a terrifying prospect because mm. then who am I? Like what defines me? Nothing. Yeah. And at this point in time, because there wasn't really anything specifically, the eating disorder fully defined me. Yeah. So that I like when totally you say, understand that. Like when you say, you know, I almost had to leave behind that version of myself, I kind of feel like I've lived three lives. Mm. I've lived the Formula One Kate, I've lived the eating disorder Kate, and now I've lived the, the pastry chef, Kate. Yeah. And because all three of those things have fully consumed me and defined me.
2: It is mad how, you know, our, I think it's very parallel. Like I trained as a dancer. I was with the Royal Ballet. That was my entire existence. And it just wasn't – being a dancer wasn't healthy for me. Yeah. And when you do say goodbye to that, that world, your identity, who you are, it's, it's soul-destroying. It's so hard. And yeah. it's how you get back up again – which obviously looking at where we are now, we can be like, wow, we got back up again and you got back up again. You went back to Australia. Obviously, I can't it must have been did you get help, by the way? Because over here, the hospitals were absolute rubbish. Yeah. Doctors didn't help. They didn't know what to do. Um well, like nobody diagnosed it in the UK.
1: And I was
2: that makes sense. I was a rake.
1: Like, you know, you're a shadow of, like, you look look like you've got cancer.
2: Yes. When I got
1: home, mum just burst into tears at the airport. She's like, my daughter looked like she had cancer.
2: Yeah. Bless her. And how,
1: Mm. and she'll just want to shake you. And it's just like, yeah. And like, dad just wanted to feed me. Yeah. He thought, like, and it's funny, that's another thing that, it's a misnomer that, people think, oh, eating disorder, just feed them. Food isn't actually the problem. Food is just a symptom. There's like, you have to get to the underlying problem in order to fix it. And then it fixes itself. Definitely. When there's not room in your head for the eating disorder anymore. So, but dad just wanted to feed me, you know, he just wanted like happy. Like I totally lost my sense of humor and dad's like, you're not funny anymore. You used to be so funny. (laughs)
2: Oh, I love that approach though. I love it. But again, it's very similar to, yeah, the, the one parent just like, just, Put, throw this at it, eat, do this, because they're panicking. No one knows how to deal with it. If with I had the a support child. support
1: for oh, families and people who nothing. are supporting, there's nothing yeah. because people don't talk about it. There's still a bit of a taboo. I, that's why I'm so happy that we're talking about yeah. it. Like so many people have disordered eating. Yeah. I reckon it's so undiagnosed out there and it controls people without, maybe they don't get to the point where they're like physically – you know, in danger. Mm-hmm. But disordered eating just controls your
2: life. There's so many variants of it, and I totally yeah. agree. And I think if people don't reach how baby poorly we got, they think, well, I don't have a, an eating there's disorder. There's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. I'm just healthy. Yes. You know. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I'm doing because I want to fit into this dress. I'm doing, like, it's, yeah. there's, and I lockdown, I know for a fact, has made, uh, has brought up a lot of eating disorders. Yeah. It's affected so many people. Mm. So... You're living in Australia. You've moved back home. You how 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 does it all happen? What's the the first thing that got you into this world? So, the day that I landed, I
1: had an idea that like the only thing that was making me happy at this point was baking.
2: Okay, so you had so that had, light in you. That, yeah,
1: yeah, and like I think. I had to live with my parents for a couple of years while I was recovering, and I think mum must have gotten sick of me baking. (laughs) But I had this idea that I would like to explore that as a job. Mm. But I think there was part of me that was terrified. Like I'd committed, like you said, like I had no party life during university. You know, I frowned upon my 15-year-old friends if they'd have a drink at a party. Mm. I'd be like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. You know, those years which are normally formative in terms of like learning behaviour, I was just so focused. And I think I was a little bit terrified of totally throwing myself into something again with the fear that maybe I'd get there and and the same thing would happen. So I was more tentative with the baking. And I applied for a job just working at the counter at this beautiful artisanal bakery in Melbourne, the day that I got back from the UK. And I mean, they shouldn't have hired me. I was deeply unwell but I can talk myself into anything I think if I get myself to a job interview I'm pretty convinced that you're gonna get it yeah Yeah. (laughs) so I got the job and I absolutely loved working in that bakery and you know I was very proud of the things that we were selling but the only thing that frustrated me was that I wasn't making it so it was enough of a sign to me that maybe this was something worth pursuing yeah so mum and dad lived in this like fairly, like it's called Camberwell's. It's it's a very British middle class, you know, nice big houses and yards and family. Yeah. And there was this one little cafe that was not like any of the other cafes in the area. It was this beautiful Greek couple who were 40, so like my age now, but wow. I think at the time I was maybe <laughs> 27. And I would go to this cafe on my days off from the bakery, have a coffee, and I'd just sit there and watch this woman mary working in this tiny little kitchen just whipping up the most beautiful exotic mediterranean and middle eastern dishes like the likes of which middle class melbourne in the suburbs i don't think they'd ever witnessed like yeah. you'd see someone walking off the street and maybe it seated 12 people it was perfect and they'd walk in and they'd go Oh, can you just do me like pancakes with ice cream? And, and she's like, <laughs> "Get out!" <laughs> I, I think it would really frustrate her that she yeah. was so far ahead of her time for Melbourne. But one day, I plucked up the courage and I said to her, "Would you ever um, let me come and work for you and do some of your baking?" And she was just, she was just divine. She's like, "Of course, darling. You can start next week, and you'll work Tuesday through to Saturday." And you'll start at 6.30 in the morning and you'll finish up at 10.30 in the morning and you'll do all the baked goods for the counter. And I was like, oh, my God, someone's going to like let me loose on their (laughs) KitchenAid. So that sort of entered into probably one of the most um, supportive, positive, inspiring periods I've ever experienced in my life where I really felt welcomed into their family. Yeah. And I learned so much. Like she taught me about seasons and the provenance of ingredients and, you know, like how to bake commercially, because it is different if you're baking at home compared to, you know, Mm. having to produce something, having a prep list, you know, understanding how kitchens work. But it was in an incredibly supportive way. It it certainly wasn't, you know, a a terrifying kitchen where people are shouting at you. And I got this opportunity to cook for a living and... I would bounce across, you know, across the park to get to this cafe every morning. And 6.30 would come and I just the four hours would fly by. And I kept saying to her,
2: are you sure you don't want
1: me to stay later? And she's like, no, darling, 10.30 is done. You've done your jobs. And I'm like, but I could help you with the prep. Nope, nope, you're done. And like about two or three years later, I actually discovered that I didn't realise she knew I was sick or why I was sick. But she said she recognised it the very first time I walked in the door and she said, you just weren't up to working more than four hours oh, wow. and I didn't want to burn you out. I wanted it to be a really positive and supportive experience for you. And I knew that four hours was the limit. So I wouldn't let you stay longer for your own good, which is incredible when you That's look back. That's just remarkable. Isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So anyway, I'm working at this beautiful cafe. is called USIA, by the way. So I'm working at Usia, having this whale of a time with Mary and Al learning and gently on the re- road to recovery. And I am starting to get a little bit impatient with the simpler things to bake. And I mean, I start to turn my research outside of work to French pastry, because it's very technical and complex and an engineering mind loves that. So I'd ordered myself a book on Amazon called uh, Paris Patisseries. And it was, it's sort of, I think, celebrated like you know, a couple of dozen boulangeries and pâtisseries in Paris, mm. and spoke about the history of them and then featured a recipe from each of the places. And I got home from work this particular day, the book had arrived, you know, tear it open sitting on the lounge room floor and randomly open it up. And there's this stunning photo that's that the whole double page. And it had been taken at a boulangerie in the 10th arrondissement called du Pain de Desidée. And it was a really zoomed in photo of pain au chocolat that were displayed on the counter. Oh, wow. And it was such a sharp macro photo that you could, like it was like you could reach into the page mm. and touch the layers of the pastry and like the little chocolate batons poking out oh. and the shine. Like it was like if you touched it, the page might crunch. Yes, you know? yes. And like you could smell the butter yeah, coming off it. I was going to
2: say that. I was going to say that.
1: Yeah. Wow. And I was so hypnotised by this photo that I closed the book walked up to the nearest set of shops where there was a flight center and I booked myself a ticket to Paris. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. And went into work the next day and I told Mary and Al. Yeah. And Mary's like, oh my God, I've never been to Paris. I'm coming with you. So after work, we went and booked her ticket. And then a few weeks later, Al was really grumpy and he's like, well, you never (laughs) asked me. I want to come with you too. So the three of us headed off to Paris together. And on our final day in Paris, they went off and did their own thing. And Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I've just got to go to that bakery where the photo was taken. So I walk across town to it. And then there's this little line of like, you know, elegant French women snaking out the door and I jump in the line. And I'm just enamored by even just watching how each of them engage with the process. Like they weren't standing there on their phones. They were just patiently waiting. They were taking in this like stunning Belle Epoque boulangerie with, you know, it was, it's ornate and there's brass and yeah. like a mosaic ceiling and everything is perfect. And then when you finally get into the shop, there is the counter like resplendent with pastries. And I think I had maybe lost track of where I was in the queue because I arrived at the front and the vendeurs or the sales <sighs> assistant is laughing at me She's like, "Oh, you've been standing here for about 10 seconds. Um <laughs> what can I get what well, in French? What can I get for you?" So in broken French I tried to explain that I'd booked the ticket because I'd seen this photo of the boulangerie in a book. And she ran out the back and got the owner who was the only one who spoke English in the shop. And I told him and he I think he went and wrapped up like five or six pastries and he's like, "No, please, they're on me." I love this story. So good man. Just the experience of witnessing, like, I it, just this memory of this line of people mm. who all like in their own little pocket of Paris, they would have been thinking, oh, I'll go to yeah. Dupin this morning and I'll get my pain au chocolat or, you know, my escargot. And then they had the moment of waiting in the line and you're just, all the senses are engaged, like the yeah. smell and the, the, the sight around you. And then you get your pastry and like you, like you see them walking out the door and they're already eating it they just they can't even wait i'm like he got to give all of those people in that line a moment of joy that yes. maybe like was even longer than that because they'd been dreaming about it since mm-hmm. they woke up or maybe they thought about it before they went yeah. to bed so the next day i sent him an email from the internet room in my hotel
2: okay then <laughs> yes those <Yeah. laughs> smartphones a few years ago
1: and i just told him how much the experience had meant to me and how I'd witnessed this process of him just giving so many people this moment of joy and I was like so enamored by it that I again same as with Mary I just was like oh I don't suppose you'd consider taking me on as an apprentice I'd love to learn from you and he wrote back within the hour and said well we don't normally take people with no experience and also people that don't speak french because everybody in the boulangerie speaks french and it would be difficult but for some reason I can see the same passion and motivation that drives you, that drove me, when would you like to start? Wow. So I landed myself a spot at uh, one of Paris's best boulangeries.
2: You find your people, don't you, in yeah. your journey? You I really feel your... like
1: the universe, if you keep your eyes open and yeah. I believe in connection with people
2: yeah.
1: and also, I mean, there, are, there have been people that I've asked things of and they say no and that will happen all the time and they've mm. got their own reason but the right people yes. that are meant to be in your life will say yes so you've got to ask. Yeah. And it's okay if people say no, it's just not the right person.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how did that happen? So you've got this apprenticeship now – in yeah, so Paris it
1: started off as what's called a stage. So in the hospitality industry, a stage is an unpaid internship. Okay. So Christophe and I agreed that I'd do a three-month stage. And at the end of it, if he thought that I was progressing in an appropriate manner and I was enjoying it, I, I would go on to do the full apprenticeship. So it's really expensive to live in Paris without a salary. But, yeah. <laughs> do you know, I've just... I love telling this story. I've told it so many times, but every time I tell it, something else occurs to me that I haven't actually like been able to articulate before. And in talking to you, when I started in F1 and the salary was low, I should have, like, if it was the right career for me, I should have loved it, even Mm. though like The work was incredibly hard and it was stressful. If it was the right thing for me, all of those things wouldn't have mattered. In the boulangerie in Paris, there were super long days and it was like quite a small corner shop. So the storeroom was in the cellar and then there was this tiny like metal spiral staircase and then there was the the bakery shop and where the ovens were. Mm. And then there was another tiny spiral staircase up to the first floor where the raw pastry kitchen was where I worked. And daily, we would be carting 25 kilo bags from the cellar up these two precarious staircases up to the raw pastry kitchen and like kilos and kilos of butter. And it was exhausting because all the learning was happening in a language that I didn't speak. So I had to be so visually aware of what was happening and also listen out. So I was learning a language, learning new skills and physically working. I would go home so exhausted but fulfilled and happy yeah, every day. There we go. And yeah. it didn't matter that I wasn't getting paid at the time, like at, at the point where you can't support yourself anymore, it becomes a problem. Yeah. But no part of me felt disgruntled or like that it was unfair. I was just so immersed in what I was mm. doing that it didn't matter. Yeah. And I've never
2: that's it been, though, a- isn't been it? able to that's, put that together. Yeah, that's it. When yeah. And I think you said as well, it's like if you have to get up early for something and you're not looking forward to it or you think you are, you should be, it ticks all the boxes. But you're really tired and it's such a struggle. Whereas when you started working with Alan, Mary, you were skipping across the lawn. like Again, it's feeding your soul. It's making you feel alive. It's giving you the purpose, the purpose that you probably have been looking for, had been looking for for your whole life. But... You know, you, you kind of tell yourself, no, I'm meant to go for this and that's it. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it's creating your own thing, not in a way walking someone else's path. Totally. To get to that dream job. because I also feel like I've never walked someone else's path. Exactly. Like
1: I think to backtrack to the engineering, yeah. at my all-girls school, um, year nine, We all had a session with the careers counsellor and I was the, I was one of the only ones that marched into her office knowing exactly what I wanted. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, she's going to love this. It's going to be easy for her. I'm already on the right track with my subjects. I know what I want. And I'm really like, I'm a girl who wants to do engineering. And I sat down at her desk and she said, oh, are you sure you're a girl? You've got to get very high marks to get into aerospace engineering. Maybe you should just study arts. (laughs) And like this is, uh, this is in the nineties. Yeah, like, we're not talking about the eighteen hundreds. No, no. This is the careers counselor at a girls' school. Yeah, discouraging someone from going not to. Not surprised
2: STEM. at all. How mad is that? Like to not be surprised. Yeah. I think you're someone that needs connections. That you said before, you're someone that probably needs to feel safe. Someone that, um, yeah, needs to fill that kind of community somehow. Yeah and then you become who you're meant to be. Yeah. Um so don't get me
1: wrong, I love working solo. Yeah, yeah. But but, but like being part of a hospitality community, like yeah, being yeah. in London this last week has just been it's been maybe one of the best trips of my life. I have met so many people who now, you know, through the joys of social media, yeah. you're actually able to connect with people on the other side of the world that you don't know. And I've met all these people that I've admired from afar, and I've discovered that they've admired me from afar. Wow. And like I've got like several new branches of the Mutual Appreciation Society. Like That's brilliant. You know, just <laughs> met up with some incredible pastry chefs in London and chefs, and you just find this common connection because yeah. you're part of a community. And yeah. you're right. It's like being able to share your love with someone else and actually celebrate it and, and enjoy it. And it's just been the most incredible week.
2: I feel like, you know, I think sometimes you can feel like, you mentioned imposter syndrome when we um, earlier on when you were talking about something else. And it's sometimes feeling like you don't know, You don't, for me anyway, you don't know where you belong or you might not be the same as all your friends. It's just like, what is it with me? Why yeah. am I so different or this? Then all of a sudden you meet other people like-minded or just other souls like yourself it's like oh i'm not this like
1: yeah yeah here are my people yes that's what it is
2: here are my my people and it's funny like the uh, the best way i can
1: describe it is working in f1 every day i still felt a bit like i was a kid getting dressed up to sort of play engineer okay and you know like the clothes were a bit too big. They didn't fit me properly. And it felt a little bit like, oh, this is a bit uncomfortable, but in I'm going to stick it out because yeah. one day it will become comfortable. Yeah. Ever since deciding to work in pastry, I feel like I've found my thing. And since starting my own business, there is nothing more that I can speak confidently about than croissant. And like my own recipe and my own business, I feel completely like I feel like, like a complete human. Like yeah. I found my wow. thing. And like no one I, – I can speak, yeah, just just deeply confidently about it and I don't feel like I'm getting dressed up and pretending to be something that I'm not. I'm just, just actually being who I should be, who I was meant to be.
2: Yeah, I think yeah. that's amazing. So how – so you're working in Paris. How – did you go back to Alan Mary? I mean, are they still walking around Paris? Um, <laughs> how did you then create what you've got now?
1: So – inevitably living for with no salary in Paris became totally untenable. Yeah. And I was living in Le Marais, which is right in the centre, probably one of the most expensive areas okay. you can live.
2: Go big, I understand. Yeah, cool, like
1: go big or go home, <laughs> exactly,
2: right? Exactly, let's do this. So I ended
1: up having to go home. <laughs> right, yep. <laughs> and it, it fell coincidentally. I was working at a really amazing cafe in Melbourne at this point in time. I think um, around 2006, 2007, there was a real shift in what the cafe experience was was and i think it's now spread globally like this brick, go out for breakfast yeah. brunch, brunch culture yeah yeah and um i'd ended up leaving like going on from mary and allen getting a job at one of melbourne's arguably best cafes and you know there were lines out the door for breakfast and brunch on a daily basis and they had an amazing cake counter and so i was stretching myself a little bit but then i went to paris and the owner of the cafe contacted me after a few weeks and he's like hey we're expanding into the space next door and it would be really great if you could come back and at this point in time i'd you know been working at the boulangerie for a month and i'm like i know everything about croissants <laughs> yeah. and i can't afford to live in paris anymore so i think the plan was that like Christophe, the owner of the Boulangerie had told me that I was progressing really well with my knowledge and that the opportunity for an apprenticeship would absolutely be there. But he still wanted me to see out the three-month stage and I just couldn't afford Mm. that. So I thought I might go back to Melbourne. I'll help out this cafe with the opening of the new space. And then maybe I'll see how I go and go back to Paris. But once I was back in Melbourne, like, to go back to Paris would have been my fourth move to Europe. Wow. And okay. it's a huge undertaking. Like, mm. not only the logistics and the physical nature of it, but, like, mentally to keep leaving behind your life. Yeah. And
2: it's like you're in limbo in a way.
1: Yeah, exactly. So mm. I was back in Melbourne working at the cafe and I was spending all my days off just traipsing to, like, all corners of the city, trying every single bakery, just wanting to recreate experiences that I'd had in Paris. And no one... Was making good croissants. Like, there was, it was clearly just this token item on a counter that, you know, oh, I own a bakery, I should have croissants on the counter, mm-hmm. but absolutely no love or precision had gone into the making of the product. And I like, I, I became obsessed with finding a good one. And I think eventually I was like, no one is making a good one. And Melbourne has amazing coffee. Like, I'm going to put it out there. I think it's the best coffee in the world. Like, oh, you the went general, there. <laughs> I did go there. I think the general standard of it mm. in every single place that serves it is a much higher bar than everywhere else in the world. And I'm like, how come I can go to an amazing espresso bar and have, like, a world-beating coffee, yeah. but I can't have a good croissant with it? Like, something's up here because that combination, to me, is the perfect breakfast.
2: Yeah.
1: And then I was like, oh... Maybe I could make the croissants and I could supply them to espresso bars. So Loon was born and it started off, I signed a lease on a 20 square metre space in a tiny residential suburb, like in Bayside, Melbourne, like in the middle of nowhere. But it didn't really matter where I was based because I was wholesale. So I was going to be delivering anyway. And I started supplying, well, to backtrack, because this is quite important, The first day that I made like the dough recipe that I'd I'd taken what we were doing in France and I'd adapted it because already in France making the dough, I was thinking, oh, if I was doing this, maybe I'd do this, this and this differently. Mm -hmm. So the first one that I do, I try my adaptations and I tip the dough out on the bench and I just have this memory of standing there staring at it thinking oh my God, I don't know what to do next. Like I'd only spent a month in the bakery. And of course the head pastry chef isn't going to let me on. A, there's this crucial piece of equipment called the laminator, which is, two, it's mechanical and it's two stainless steel rolling pins. The distance between them is controlled by either manually or semi-automatically. Okay. And then there's two rolling belts on either side. So the, the dough rolls between them on the belts and it gradually thins out the dough. So it's essentially what we would do with a rolling pin, but right. it's okay. way more gentle and yeah. it imparts a lot less strength into the gluten. So it's crucial for a commercial bakery. And like Sebastian had never let me use the laminator. That was, you know, that was his job. Yep. And yeah, don't go near that. No. Yeah. And then like forget the laminator, rolling out the batch, marking and cutting it, shaping the pastries, proving them, baking them. There were wow. so many processes that I had no idea. But I'd spent my life savings setting up the bakery. I'd signed a lease. I'd quit my job.
2: We've got to I'm make like, it work.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, you know what? I'm an engineer. And ultimately, above all else, engineers are problem solvers.
2: Yeah.
1: And I was like, I can solve this problem. And maybe I don't know what the step is between making the dough and having this croissant at the end. But I know what I want to achieve at the end. So I'm going to reverse engineer the whole thing. So I spent about three months reverse engineering the process. (laughs) And as a result, the technique that we use at Loon is incredibly different to the classic French technique because I wasn't classically trained in it. And along the way, you know, I asked advice. I contacted Christophe and he was very generous with his knowledge. But I would trial the thing that he gave me and the product that came out at the end wasn't quite what I expected or maybe wasn't quite as good as I thought it could Mm. be. And it made me really critically assess the classic techniques and try and improve them. So what we do at Loon is not tied to the classic technique. And I think there's a double benefit of that where if you work in in a bakery that does the classic technique, Mm. that is dyed in the wool. Like you do not challenge that. If you come in as an apprentice, you get taught it and then you replicate that day in, day out because that's how you make croissants. But at Loon, because it's not the classic technique and it was born out of reverse engineering to create the most perfect product possible. Every single day, every step in the three-day process is up for critical assessment. And if any one of our pastry chefs has an idea on how it can be improved, just like working as an aerodynamicist in the F1 team, like on a daily basis, we're trying to improve the car and focusing on all the different aerodynamic elements. If someone has an idea on how we can improve the end product or the efficiency without affecting the quality of the end product, they're allowed to say what it is, how they want to test it. They're then allowed to test it. And then like F1, they compare it to the baseline. And if it's better than the baseline, it becomes the new process. That's
2: amazing. That's in a way what you wanted when you were at Williams. Yeah. You you, you wanted to have more of a say. You wanted to have more of that. Let's all, let's try this let's idea. Be let's be collaborative try. and creative yes. And, yes. and
1: pull together like- not just this idea of copying or like repeating what someone else has done, but like using critical assessment and our engineering brains. Like, pastry, like at Loon, I reckon we've got pastry engineers, not pastry chefs. Like, it's yeah, really well said. Yeah, yeah they're, I like that. And like, they're all intelligent and they've all got ways, like ideas that maybe I would never even have because they see the world from a different yeah. perspective. So, every day they're able to bring their ideas and positively impact the business, which is so good for us because. I think
2: our croissant just keeps getting better.
1: And did
2: you grow from, you know, doing the wholesale? Oh, yeah. <laughs> did it grow quite quickly?
1: So the first 18 months was me by myself. And again, I was like working 90, 100 hours a week. Mum and Dad, bless them, would come down. Like Mum would finish work at about four and then come down and help for a few hours. And Good old some, parents. Good old parents. Right. And yeah. Dad would show up like at five in the morning and do the dishes and then oh. like clean the kitchen when I went to do delivery. So... I was lucky to have their support, but ultimately I am somebody that needs human interaction. Yeah. And I started to feel the depression coming on, but I'm sure you can associate with this too. I think once you've suffered from a mental illness, you're so much more aware of yourself and you yeah. can feel the subtle signs of it coming on. Yeah. So, so there's that like little trigger, yeah. triggers basically. Correct. Yeah. So I shut down the business for two weeks and went on holiday to Paris because I'm like, I just need to go back to the place where it all started and be re-inspired. you fell in love? Yep, literally, with a croissant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I came – I actually met this um, amazing girl, Jessie, on the plane. And when we both got back to Melbourne, she had tickets to go hear this guy called Rene Redzepi talk, who I didn't know who he was at the time, but he was the head chef and owner of what had just won the best restaurant in the world, Noma. Oh, wow. And he'd just written a book – which also had uh, a special edition journal attached to it where he spoke about the year that he first won Best Restaurant and how it was one of the most difficult years of his life. And I mean, there's obviously a a vast gap between Best Restaurant in the world and Tiny Little Bakery in Melbourne (laughs) making croissants. But some of the things that he spoke about resonated with Mm -hmm. me. And I left that talk knowing that I needed to make a change to bring the business back to what I needed professionally to make me feel fulfilled. So I called my brother who's on a business, he's on a motorbike trip up the East coast of Australia. And he'd always worked in hospitality, but front of house. And I said to him, Hey, I really want to change Loon from a wholesale business to just a retail customer facing business. Because like for my own fulfillment, I need to see the customers enjoying the end product. And like, you know, all, all your three days of work, And then you don't get to see someone take a mouthful and go like, you know, those women lining up at the bakery in Paris and taking their first mouthful while they're walking out and seeing them enjoy it. You want to
2: see that moment. You want to be part of that moment more. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
1: So I could hear his eyes roll through the phone like, oh, yeah, I'll go help my sister in her pokey little bakery. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I'll flip her off after a couple of weeks and she can do it by herself. But like two weeks in, the lines started in like a suburb in the middle of nowhere. And then wow. they were getting longer and earlier. And like one day Cam and I rolled up at the bakery at like 4.30 in the morning and there were people lined up and we didn't open till eight. And then it got to the point I mean, where – That's amazing. It's, ama- it's like <sighs> I still look back on it and it's almost mythical. Yeah yeah, 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 totally. So it got to the point where we were open Friday, Saturday, Sunday and the first customers would arrive between two and three in the morning And by 6.30, there was maybe 120 people lined up around the block. We had to have a ticketing system because everything was sold out by like 8.45. And every customer was limited to, you know, six pastries. Like it was, it became like
2: soup. It it had. Yes, this is. Yeah. I can't believe that was happening. Like you said, in a, in the part of Australia where you were in the suburbs. Yeah. You have created. And is this all word of mouth? Literally. Like, (sighs) and I
1: think, and you know what, it's. Loon would not be Loon if I didn't have the background in engineering in Formula One, mm. not only because it makes me look at it different to a classically trained baker, and obviously that's the biggest difference, yeah. but especially in the early days, there was this media fascination early on with this girl who used to work in Formula One and now she's making croissants. So the media were interested in us mm. and then it became a little bit like folklore, like oh, have you heard about that bakery down in Elwood Brilliant. that like there's like lines around the block at 6.30 in the morning. I think my favourite story is, I think it was 2014, a federal election. And by this stage, if you weren't at Loon by five in the morning, you were going to miss out. Right. So this guy reaches the front of the line at maybe 8.30. And like we'd converted, the shop was so tiny, we'd converted the front door into a barn door. So that was the counter we'd sell across the barn door. And he comes up to the barn door and he's like perplexed and he's looking around and he says to Cam... Where are the voting booths? (laughs) No. He was there to vote. He'd stood in a line for like three and a half hours and he thought he was voting. And Cam's like, mate, you're in a line for croissants. But he's like... They're really hard to get your hands on, so maybe you should just buy something. I like mean, one. fair yeah. cam, Like, a uh, ditty. Yeah. That's,
2: that's hilarious. It's and also good. really flattering as well. No, no you're like, wow. <laughs> Q's, You'd expect that over here. Q's a Q. Do you know what I mean? You're going to yes, stand totally. in it for as long as you want. Yeah. Um, so how did you get to so the New York Times has voted your croissants the best in the world? Yeah, like, what was that
1: like? It's that sentence when people say it to me is still like, it's a bit of like a, what? Um. So, Oliver Strand, who worked for the New York Times, he actually came to Melbourne when we were based in Elwood in the tiny little shop. And a friend of mine was a world barista champion. And he brought Oliver to Loon one morning and he said, hey, can we just come inside the shop? And I was sleeping upstairs on a mezzanine level. So there was this little like rickety set of stairs that would were next to, with like an open balustrading next to the bench that I would egg wash the pastries. Yeah. And so Matt and Oliver sat on the stairs next to me. And at this point, I had no idea who Oliver was. And Matt's like, hey, Kate, can we have a pastry? I'm like, yes, you can have one each because everybody lining up there has lined up in their priority. Mm. So Oliver was like, oh, oh, I'll just have a plain croissant. And the review of the New York Times was based on Oliver Strand eating one plain croissant sitting on my rickety stairs next to me in a 20-square-metre bakery. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. It's pretty wild. Yes, it is. The story came out, we moved to this which is now our headquarters still, this incredible turn-of-the-century warehouse. So uh, it's not old by British standards, but, you know, maybe 120 years old. And it was completely uh, empty and and run down when we took it. But we gutted it out and then we put a climate-controlled glass room right in the centre of the custom area, which is our raw pastry working kitchen. So we can witness the customers enjoying the pastries and they can witness us making it, which is Maybe it's becoming a little bit more prevalent now, but when we did it, it was certainly the first of its kind and revolutionary. But the New York Times article came out when we'd already moved to that space, and I think people think that Oliver came to this, like, spaceship-like bakery with this crazy Slick. climate-controlled yeah. room. But now he was just sitting on a
2: set of stairs next to me. I think so. that's absolutely beautiful. It really, really is. Yeah. Um, now I'm aware of the time... Um, we yeah, we've can been chatting, sorry. We've been <laughs> for ages. Tell us about your your book. And also, Loon, is that named after the moon? Yes. Right, okay. That's
1: brilliant. And also after the Tintin comic Objective Loon. So my beautiful boyfriend at the time from my F1 days, he knew I loved baking and he said if you ever open a cafe or a bakery, you should call it Objective Loon because he'd bought me the poster of the rocket taking off from the desert. That's beautiful. So that's also why our logo is a rocket. I love yeah. that. I and links to my aerospace engineering past. It's and perfect. The fact that it's a French word and the moon is croissant shaped. So it just works. Yeah, and from a marketing perspective, and I only learnt this years later, someone was like, oh, you were really smart. Four letters, one syllable, easy to remember. I'm like, oh, that was luck.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I am a genius at this marketing, yeah. <laughs> so it seems. But yeah, tell us about your, your book.
1: So I've been approached over a number of years now mm. to write a book, but I think you know, the first publisher approached me back in 2016. And you know, when you're not ready to write one yet, like, I think you intrinsically know when you feel like you have something important to say, and you've got enough of a history of either your life or your business to talk about, to compile a whole book. And Mm -hmm. 2016, I certainly wasn't ready. And also, I was still working full time on production, like, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. And writing a book, you have to like throw your entire self mm-hmm. into it it yeah. becomes something like an all-consuming project and so finally last year a good friend of mine you know came and did the Aussie thing living in the UK for a couple of years and she was working at Hardy Grant over in Borough Market and she said oh Kate I happened to mention to my commissioning editor one day that I was friends with you and she like just lost it like <laughs> what do you mean you mean like loon like the bakery in Melbourne you're friends with the owner and she said, oh, do you think you I, I could get an audience with Kate? And Alex said, well, I can ask her, but I can't promise anything. So I ended up on a Zoom with Eve last July. Okay. Um, and instantly, like, I just had a connection with her and I knew that she was going to be the one to write the book with me yeah. or, or, like, publish the book for me. She just – she got it. She was as excited about writing the Loon book as I felt excited and I knew that she was going to do it justice So coincidentally, I signed the contract and days later, Melbourne went into its second huge lockdown. Um, and I was forced to work from home and suddenly I like, I couldn't cheat and recipe test in Loon where I have all the commercial bakery equipment. All I had was a rolling pin and a KitchenAid and my bench at home. So I kind of embarked on six months of throwing myself into the manuscript and oh, wow. again re-engineering the recipe because it's impossible for the home baker to replicate what we do in a commercial bakery because they just don't have the commercial bakery equipment. Mm. So again, I've re-engineered the recipe and it's highly unorthodox. I think maybe some French chefs might turn their noses up yes. at it. But
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: but ultimately the product that you get at the end is an incredible result. And I make no bones about it in the book. It's challenging and time consuming, but I've written it really detailed in the hope that, like, the home baker will feel that I'm kind of standing in the kitchen talking them through the process in a very detailed manner. So... That's amazing. Yeah, there's the raw pastry and then 60 recipes of what to do with the pastry.
2: Oh, brilliant. Yeah.
1: And what's the book called? Oh, it's called uh, Loon Croissants All Day, All Night. (sighs) And it's called that because, as far as I'm aware, I think Loon really revolutionised how people view croissants. Like, Mm. it's not just a classic croissant or a pain au chocolat that you have for breakfast. Like at Loon, we make pastries literally that you can have for all meals of the day. So the books split up into chapters that go all the way from breakfast through to dessert. And then there are a couple of chapters of what to do with leftover croissants, maybe for people that can't be bothered spending three days making the pastry, but they just want to wander down to like dusty knuckle and grab half a dozen croissants. Oh and yeah, we want all into. the
2: glory without much work. Totally. That's how I view. That's- yeah, me all over.
1: Yeah. But you can still create something that's iconically Loon yeah. with that and engage with the book and and have a bit of Melbourne in London or wherever you are in the UK.
2: So I think that's an absolute delight. And if people want to follow you on, on social media, if yeah. they want to you know, find out more about you, what are your uh, social media handles?
1: So my personal one is Ms. Loon, so Ms. Dot loon, and uh, the business is Loon Croissant on Instagram. I'm too old for TikTok.
2: Oh, don't even. Yeah, I Don't mean, even know how it works. It makes you feel old, Kate. I yeah. tell you, when I looked at it the other day, it's like, yeah, I'm now depressed. I'm not 18, apparently, and <laughs> on Love Island, uh, which is a good thing for both. Um, Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much for having me.
0: The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. There we go. That was Rachel Downey and Kate Reed. What a very lovely conversation.
2: Yeah, do you know, like I said before, it's quite rare sometimes to meet people that you feel have gone through very similar experiences to you. Mm. And yeah, I, I, I just felt that with Kate straight away. Um, yeah, I, I, I loved it. Also, when you meet someone that's achieved a lot in their lives, it does make you look at your life afterwards and like, <laughs> uh, what have I been doing? Yes, <laughs> when <laughs> will I grow up and do those things? But yeah, I really, really enjoyed it me and Kate. She's a very, very lovely lady. And hopefully she'll be back in the UK again soon. Mm, and with, some with some croissants. With some croissants. Honestly, <laughs> I just want to eat her croissants. What's wrong with that? <laughs> That's all I want.
0: <laughs> now we did say at the beginning of this episode that we'd come back at the end with some parish notes. And here we are. Uh, and here we are also with additional voice, Amber Young.
2: Hello there. hello there. Every time. Every time, <laughs> <laughs> Every time there's an accent. <laughs> um,
0: and the reason we're saying a quick hello with Amber here as well at the end is because, of course, as you may be aware, if you are a periodic listener, week in, week out, uh, then you will be aware that we had a couple of bonus episodes over the Christmas period. Um, I definitely didn't call them Christmas bonuses, but, you know, it was a bonus, <laughs> bonus over the Christmas period called Getting to Know Your Hosts. We did one episode with Amy Shaw and one episode with me, led by... You and the young
2: Indeedy yeah. uh, I did actually really enjoy this conversation so I felt so like there's a part I. two coming
0: There is And we know that Because at the time that we're recording this You've just done another interview with Rachel Downey Do
2: you know what? I love, I love I that Amber <laughs> just said I actually enjoyed them Basically imagine she said I didn't really like asking you, John <laughs> You well, guys were well, Honestly Worse work Worse I not want to say anything all right. I'm Um,
0: joking. But yes, I wanted to say, um, because as I said at the beginning of this episode, and and if you're still with us, dear listener, then fantastic, great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. um, We... We haven't really referenced the fact that we've entered a new year. So Happy New Year. uh, Happy happy New Year! Um, Hope everyone had a lovely Christmas. (laughs) And uh, yeah, the only reason we haven't done that is because, of course, we've got quite ahead of ourselves. We are currently recording ahead of time for interviews coming up. We've recorded, we've got about five weeks of content uh, lined up, ready to go. So it becomes very easy to forget to kind of check in and go, Mm. Hi, we're still relevant. It's still January (laughs) 2023. Um, But yes, Thank you. As the main thing I wanted to say. A huge thank you to everyone that's taken the time to send direct messages. I know that Amy has had an awful lot. I've had an awful lot. Um, some quite uh, touching and very emotional messages I've received from people on Instagram and various other uh, social media platforms, people that have taken the time to listen and then get in touch and say, hey, I didn't really know that about you and... Uh, and stuff Uh, and Amy has as well so thank you massively to everyone and thank you Amber uh, for uh, leading those conversations so brilliantly. Uh, You dear listener will be hearing more from Amber in the future we'll be out and about doing various bits and pieces attending lots of shows this year and um, yeah creating lots of lovely content and we teased uh, we teased a week or two or three ago about the fact that there is going to be an additional podcast output coming soon non-motoring related but within our family of media and that's going to be led by rachel now i are we are we still holding back from giving any names are we giving any spoilers or shall we Should we tease anything either way we don't we don't have to
2: um no now we've 100 behind the name
0: <laughs> we
2: we can announce the name we've got a football podcast Called Behind the Dugout. Um, can I say who I'm doing it with? You can, of course. I'm doing it with um, a very good friend of mine, um, Troy Townsend. Troy is very well known in the football world. Um, he's also behind the FA's um, anti-racism charity, Kick It Out as well. Perfect. So yes, we're going to just delve deep and interview people from and around the world of football. And then, you know, moving forward, we're going to introduce other sports. But at the moment, it's football. There's so much we can talk about. And Troy works with a lot of um, younger footballers. He works for all the clubs, all the Premier League clubs, like doing workshops with them, talks with them, all to do with Kick It Out. So there's so much. So, yeah, I can't wait to kind of, yeah, get started.
0: This is genuinely exciting. Yeah. Um, And also, I mean, I am a obviously going to be sticking around doing the car stuff, and Rachel's going to be checking in with the car stuff, Amber's going to be involved in the car stuff, the football stuff. I'm so uninvolved <laughs> for the simple reason that I know as much yeah. about football as I know about quantum physics, and that's not much... In fact, no, actually, that's a lie. I think I know more about quantum physics than I know about football.
2: I totally believe that, because even when the World <laughs> Cup was going on, and I was getting a bit excited, you were literally... It was going over your head. And you uh, tried. You had some keywords. You would yeah, try to... Yeah. But um, no it didn't I can no. feel a quiz coming on guys what? and it's it, going to be such an unfair quiz football pub <laughs> oh, yeah. quiz versus
0: automotive pub
2: quiz no absolutely oh. not because you you would win that but I'm thinking a quiz <laughs> <laughs> between football and quantum physics just to see oh. how many you get
0: <laughs> uh, I mean I'm, I'm out so I, I'm not.
2: <laughs> I think it'll show how dumb well, no, I am Rach you can be the quiz master because of the football
0: Okay. All right. And I just need to swat up on, and John, you do, a to on <laughs> do a quick football read on quantum <laughs> physics. Just do a
2: quick read on quantum physics. A refresh. That'll from, be easy. Uh, GCSE. Five ten minutes quantum yeah, physics. Let thing. us know, guys. If you want to see that happen, you let us know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if anyone has, uh, yeah, sat on their shelf at home, a quick quiz on quantum physics and football combined, then yes, yeah, so. podcast at drivenchat.com, Drop Imagine. us an email. You can be the quiz host. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, For now, um, I guess we'll leave it at that. That's the exciting announcement that we've kind of led up to. Exciting announcement. Uh, It's coming. So yeah, if you Mm -hmm. are a football fanatic, uh, then you can make sure you're looking out for that. I think by this point, we might even have some social channels registered Mm -hmm. as well, so you can have a look for those. Um, What's that name again, Rach? Uh,
2: Behind the Dugout. Behind
0: the Dugout.
2: Yes. That took hours. To come up with it, a name. It has,
0: do you know, it's the, one of the most difficult things. We are so lucky that we got the word driven. and we have. That
2: tra- is amazing. We have
0: trademarked the hey. word driven. We own the word driven when it comes to any kind of media output, car reviews, uh, podcast content, interviews. We own that word.
2: My mouth has like dropped yeah. open. I know. That's I know. clever. Good work. That's I don't know
0: how we did it, really. <laughs> yeah. but uh, Well, I do know how we did it. We've got an amazing... Um, legal people that did it so thank you to them uh but yes uh, picking a name is difficult because of course every single name in the world has been thought of it's yes. like trying to register a company name isn't it like have you thought oh. of this name yes it's claimed
2: yes. i came up with some such good names and you're like oh
0: it turns out that it's been a live podcast for 30 years or something <laughs> yeah.
2: Yes. yeah that was a genius but yeah we got there and we can't wait uh, yeah it's I'm gonna excited. be it's mm. gonna be very very good and the people that we can bring to to you guys and to to interview and to kind of find out more more things and talk about mental health um especially in the world of football and just what goes on mm. really behind behind the scenes of football so yeah it should, be good. it should be very super good refreshing as well yeah thanks, yeah. thanks
0: yeah. kids watch this space uh, for now we'll let you get back on with your day whatever you're doing dear listener hope you're having a lovely day um, and have a lovely week and a lovely month and whatever time frame in which we're listening to this it's lovely
2: uh, <laughs> until
0: next week we'll be back with uh, another conversation my memory even though we've just, we've scheduled uh, about six weeks of content can't remember who it is, is that's it coming Kate up next week. week no Kate
2: read no. Kate was today Kate was today we've
0: just listened to Kate remember yes
2: yes yes we have yeah. yes. one of those
0: weird years already you know um we i don't know we'll sit we'll see it'll be somebody great keep an eye it'll on be our social amazing. feeds yeah it'll she doesn't be, love a surprise it's kind of one of the best episodes you've ever heard yeah uh, yeah keep an eye on our social feeds at driven chat on instagram on twitter on facebook on youtube ah there's worth mentioning youtube we've got a few new videos since we last plugged our youtube channel here um And if you like sitting and watching car content on the internet, like many others do, including me, uh, then we've got some content for you as well. So head over to YouTube, search for our channel, Driven Chat, you'll see some new videos there, including the Audi R8 Performance Edition Rear Wheel Drive. I've got all the right parts of that title in there, but the wrong way around, I think, but you get the idea.
2: (laughs) Very impressed. Uh, Thank you. Uh,
0: As well as a recent video, which was a battle of the minis. We've got a video coming up very soon featuring... Bowler, uh, the amazing uh, Land Rovers that go racing. Um, And just loads, loads and loads and loads to come. Loads, loads to come. A Kia EV6, uh, a Bentley Bentayga extended wheelbase. I'm getting that soon. So that's going to be a cool video feature on that. Possibly featuring a big YouTube name, that we have featured on our podcast before called Becky Evans. I think I've managed to talk Becky into doing some sort of crazy adventure with me in a Bentley Bentayga extended wheelbase. So
2: there's <laughs> hint, lots hint, for Becky. you to enjoy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're listening, hint, Becky, hint.
0: you remember you definitely agreed to that. Yeah. Um, right. Should we let our lovely listeners get on with their day?
2: Yeah, why not?
0: Good. And shall we have a coffee?
2: Oh, yes, Ooh. please. Fabulous.
0: Right. Thanks for listening, dear listener. Excellent work today, Rachel.
2: Yeah, you too. Wonderful. <laughs>
0: glory work. Coming to say hi and bye, and that's it. Done. Uh, put the feet back up. That's
2: why it's good. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. Ta ta.
0: Bye bye. The Driven Chat podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at DrivenChat.com.